Welcome to the Rock Church Audio Podcast. We are so glad that you have joined us today. Rock Church is located on Harrison Avenue, just west of the Cherryville Mall. Now here is Pastor John Sprecher with today's message. Hey, good to be here. Always good to be in my home church, and uh, I was just thinking as getting ready to come up here, and the uh, singular privilege that I enjoy of being able to be part of this congregation uh, as the pastor emeritus or the old guy or the off-to-the-shelf guy or whatever I am, and uh, the has-been, used to be. There you go. <laughs> so, but it's, it's rare. It's unusual. Very few pastors get to do what I do and uh, get to be in a part of a congregation like this. And uh, Becky and I are so blessed because of that. And appreciate Pastor Jared and celebrate him and rejoice with him. And uh, I, I, one of the things that I did when I, when I left is I actually left all decision-making positions. And so I have no influence on anything they do. Uh, Pastor Jared and I talk from time to time, and we have a great relationship. And we have those private conversations, and uh, he'll ask advice and all that, but uh, he's running the thing, and, and I'm out of it, and I'm glad. I'm glad. It's okay. It's a good thing. I don't miss it a bit. I, I, you know, I, I said, somebody asked me if I miss being a pastor, and I said, not at all, and then I realized I do miss one part, and I, I think I may have shared this before, and that is that, that when Pastor Jared's preaching, he can always come back next week and finish. I'm going to be out of town next week, so I've got to get it done today. So I only get one chance, and uh, I'll see you again on Labor Day when we get back from uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, and the next trip that we're going to be on. So just uh, a quick note uh, for, uh, on the fellowship of Christian assemblies that we're part of. Becky and I had uh, the wonderful privilege of, of going to Hawaii in January, so we missed three weeks of winter there. That was cool. And then four days later, I went to Liberia, missed some more winter. And Liberia, West Africa was our first mission outreach as a fellowship. Ruth Erickson, a pastor's, wife from Duluth, a pastor's sister from Duluth, Minnesota, went in 1919 from Duluth, Minnesota, by train, by boat, by whatever other means she had to go, to Monrovia, Liberia, West Africa, because she felt God had called her to go there. She went established a mission that grew over the years, and the fellowship was heavily invested. Many, many missionaries there, many even whose lives are laid down in that country, but now it's totally indigenous, and we celebrated the centennial of our fellowship there in February of this year, and I was there with Rolf Fury, who pastors the Duluth Church now, and uh, they now have over uh, 200 churches about 300 pastors. We had about 1,000 people on the closing service in Seed Faith Church in Monrovia. So God just doing some really cool stuff. Came home for a week and then went to uh, uh, the Pentecostal Charismatic Church in North America Conference in L.A. and preached in a church in Westminster, then in Moreno Valley. And, and that was the last Sunday they could have church before the COVID thing shut them down. So we went over to Phoenix, preached the last services they could have, before they shut down, and we've been came home March 17th, and just finally getting back moving again. And a couple of weeks ago in Waupon, Wisconsin, last Sunday down St. Elmo, and now here with you guys. So delighted to be here. We're living in a, a, a unique time, without doubt. It's a season that is different than anything any of us have ever been through. The uh, 
worldwide pandemic has changed everything, changed cultures. It's been uh, even more difficult in Africa and other places than here. They've been shut down even tighter than we are, and many of them don't have the option to work from home. They don't have the option of any unemployment. They have no support or assistance, and so it's been a very difficult and challenging time, and, and God still works through all of that, and we continue to try. But how do we respond? What's our response to, to be, and how do we carry on? I, I want to talk about faith for a little bit this morning. Faith is one of those words that you can define several different ways. It's uh, keep the faith, baby. It's uh, a person of faith. It's have faith. You know, there's all kinds of different ways we use that, that word. And, and, and someone, some would say faith is the currency of heaven, but in this, in this sense, it is not. Faith is not the currency of heaven that if I had a little bit more, I could tap heaven's vending machine and another quarter, I'd get what I want. You know, some of you haven't been there. If I had just, just a, a, a little more, then I could really have what I think I should have. And, and I never quite get to that place. And I, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, come up with the extra dollar, the extra quarter, whatever it might be to say, well, my faith is now to a place where I can f- finally do something. Well, let me, let me talk about what faith is in, in, a, in three different aspects that I want to talk to you about this morning. First of all, we need to get the definition. Faith is, is very clearly defined, Hebrews chapter 11. Many of you know the, the verses, the first verse, where it speaks simply this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's that tangible of what we can't see. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's that which by the Spirit we see, even though in the natural we don't. There is a substantive, substantive thing working in our hearts and lives. In fact, Jesus said, blessed are you who have seen me and believe, but even more blessed will be those who will not see me and yet believe. And that's us. We have not seen him in the flesh but we see him in the spirit, and faith is that substance of what we hope for in a relationship with God. The second verse in verse 6 speaks of the necessity of faith. Without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. Some of us have been at that point where we say, God, are you really there? God, do you hear me? Do you care? Are you out there anywhere? Some may have prayed that prayer. God, if you're out there, hear this. <laughs> hear me now. And eventually, the substance began to become reality in your heart. You realized he was there. But you have to believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Well, let me first talk about what I would consider the negative one, and that's what I'm calling simply reckless faith. Reckless faith. I don't know if we even call it faith, but it's, it's the, the recklessness of saying that if it's difficult, it's got to be God. And uh, if it's impossible, it's got to be God, so I'm going to do it. It's a presumption that we have immunity from every negative thing and that no matter what we do, God is going to be there. No negative consequences. It's just going to be perfect for, for life. Now, I need to remind you of a couple things. First of all, that if you decide, I am a person of faith, so I'm not going to take a boat, I'm going to walk on the water. If it gets very deep, you'll probably drown. Huh? Jesus walked on the water once that we have a record of. Most of the time, he took a boat. You know, God can do amazing things, but it's, it's presumption to assume that, oh, I can go walking on the water every day of the week. No, no, no. You, you have a, a common sense sometimes that could be helpful. It's, it's the realization that God always is at work, and that when he is at work, 
Our trust needs to be in him. Recklessness assumes upon God, doesn't find the will and the plan of God. Can I say that again? Recklessness assumes that I know what God wants to do and that it's got to be hard, got to be crazy, got to be difficult, then it must be God. And in recklessness, we do some things sometimes that are, that are plain foolish. Let me talk about a couple of pictures here. You remember the story in, in uh, Children of Israel's life and they had just crossed the Jordan following Joshua and when they get to Jericho, their instruction is, you're going to walk around the city six times, once a day for six days, and on those tra- trips around the city, you're not saying a word. Just walk around. So everybody gets up one morning, they walk around the city of Jericho, next morning, same thing, 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 and then they get to the seventh day. On day seven, he says, I want you to go around seven times, and when you get done, I want you to shout when you hear the trumpet, and when you do, you'll have the city. But there's one caveat. Destroy everything, don't take anything. So they do it. Day seven, trumpet blows, people shout, walls fall down. They go in, take the city, destroy almost everything, except for one guy by the name of Achan who squirreled out a Babylonian garment and some silver. Took him to his tent, buried him in the dirt, which is really stupid. I mean, what are you going to do with a dirty garment that's been in the, in the sand buried? It's not going to be much good anyway. And where are you going to wear it? I mean, everybody knows where it came from. So here he is. He's been disobedient. Nobody knows. Now we've got Ai, another city not too far away, not a very big city. And the leaders say to Joshua, listen, Joshua, let's not trouble the whole army. We'll just take a, a portion of the army this city is small, we'll take it out. So they head over, and unfortunately, they get routed. 36 people die, and they are, are, are routed out, and they come back to their camp, and they're in panic now. What's going to happen to us? Because now, we have not been able to see things happen without problems. So they begin to cry out to God, and what do they discover? They'd had reckless faith, because they assumed God was going to do exactly what he'd done before, And perhaps even in the same way, but there have been disobedience. And it's only after obedience and only after the sin is dealt with that they're able to continue and have victory. So many other things we could say about this. There's those times when God changes his battle plan. David, on one occasion, took on the Philistines head on, took them face to face, had a great victory and destroyed them. And the next time there's a battle line being drawn up, he says, okay, God, what do we do this time? And God says, we're doing it different. This time, instead of going face up, you're going behind them. And when you hear the sound of the troops in the trees, then you go. God will have gone before. A different strategy to do the same thing. And let me just say that. We are in a season where different strategies are necessary. One of the, the things that happens here now is, is we've got the, the, the live stream going, new strategy. We've got to do that to be able to reach people, some who may never come here, some who may come here because they watch the live stream, whoever, we don't know. But we want to be able to do what we can to try to reach out and minister and do what's effective. So the, the, the reality is God may change the plan, but we need to be willing to follow and listen. Otherwise, we're reckless. To assume the same thing every time is reckless. 
How about this one? I gave my money, I tithed at the church, and so now God needs to get me out of debt. Let me just tell you this. Tithing is not a get-out-of-debt-free card. Tithing is the first principle of stewardship. So I give my tithe, and then I'm assuming that God's going to help me to use that 90% more effectively than I could have used the 100% had I kept it. You see, God is, is the, the, the author of stewardship. If, if we are in deep debt with high interest, we're not reading Proverbs. It's a good idea not to be paying high interest. In fact, wisdom says, let's get out of debt. And tithing is not the get out of debt free card. So say, well, I gave my tithe, so I'm just going to go down to the casino with the rest of it and see what God does. That's not how God works. You see, I give it and then expect he can help me to use what I have left in stewardship with his wisdom. And how about this one? Assuming that God will protect my health and that he will take care of me with no thought of nutrition or hygiene. Let me just give us a clue here. A 16-ounce bag of potato chips at 2,462 calories is not the, the, the cornerstone of a great diet. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's 2,000 calories plus. It's about what we need a day, but that's not the healthy way to get it. You probably need a few other things mixed in. So if, if, if I'm not healthy because I'm not eating well, there's, there's a problem here. Sometimes we say, well, God, you've got to heal me. You've got to heal me. You've got to heal me. And then we keep eating potato chips. Maybe we need to get a clue. Or this time we're living in right now. I, I, I'll tell you this. I have in my pocket my little bottle of Purcell. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a clue here. When I came up here at the end of shaking a few hands, and, and I'm, I'm willing to risk hands and shake hands. I'll even give hugs. But I promise you this, I'm going to be getting my Purcell out, and I'm going to, I'm going to clean my hands. Now, I, I trust you all, but I don't know where you've been. I don't know who else has been with you. So I'm going to do whatever I can to protect myself. I, I found this that, you know, if, if I have been careful Back in the day when we used to just have colds, you remember that day? A virus that didn't kill you? <laughs> I tended not to get colds if I'd come home and wash my hands every time I came home and was careful with some hygiene. When you're not, little wonder we get sick. We carry it, we pick it up, we do it. So reckless face says, oh, there's no problem. I can go spit on everybody, hug everybody, go to a COVID party, do whatever. God's going to protect me. Wait a minute. That's reckless faith. It's presumption. Don't expect God to do it. And let me just add this. Most of the people, and, and all of us in this room probably have been here at one time or another. We've been mad at God. God, you are not fair. You didn't answer this prayer. You didn't protect me from this thing or that thing. You, you, you're not right, God. It's your fault. You did this, and we list them off. The reality is most of the time when we're mad at God is because of reckless faith. It's because of our assumptions and presumptions that we assumed that we are impermeable to any problem, that we never have a difficulty, that if we really had faith, we'd never get sick, we'd never have a problem, we'd never have a financial reversal, we'd never have a job layoff, we'd never have any of those things happen if we really had faith. 
It's a recklessness many times that misses it. No. Does God take care of us and does God protect us? Absolutely. There's no question in my mind that God watches out for us and does things that are way beyond what we deserve or what we even know. 1969, January, Becky and I had just been married for four months. That means that in uh, a week from tomorrow, we celebrate our 52nd anniversary. She hung in with me all this time. I took her all over the place, but I've kept her here. 1969, January, I'm headed off for Bible school, going from Madison, Wisconsin to Seattle, Washington, and Becky was going to fly out a week or so later, so she would uh, not have to make the drive, and so that she'd be able to get her vacation pay from the job that she worked at. So, you know, one of those deals. So I'm driving, got up super early, left Madison, headed down to central Illinois, got on 80, and I'm on, I'm on I-80, and I'm, I'm driving into Iowa, and uh, my first day out, I'm, I'm, I'm driving all of whatever you can drive. It was probably 75, 80 at the time, and, and I'm driving at her dad's 67 pickup truck with a capper on it and everything we owned in there, and I'm just tooling along past the semi as I'm coming up a hill, and, and just got back in the right lane, crest the hill, and here's a little old lady coming up the wrong way on the freeway. And a minute later, we'd have been head-on and no seat belts and 80 miles an hour, we'd all been gone. That was in the, in the early part of the day, and then I, I get to Lincoln, Nebraska later that night, the same day, and I decided I'm going to take the last exit into Lincoln, stretch my gas as far as I can, and, and it's about two or three miles into the city from, from 80, and so I, I turned in, and I'm, I'm on the way in there, and I get to the to the gas station I'm going to go to, turn into the drive of the gas station, my right front tire blows. And uh, when I pulled it off, I found out the whole rim had cracked. And so it was one of those kind of things that when it went, it was totally gone in a moment. 80 miles an hour, that would not have been a good thing. On the same trip, I'm in a whiteout in Oregon. I could have said, you know, the devil's trying to get me on my way to Bible school. I don't know. I didn't really think a lot about it, but I just knew God took care of me. I was resting in that fact that he took care of me. And there's a lot of other things that I could tell you stories all day long of the things that, that have happened, not because I was reckless, but simply because life happens. Things happen. God watches out for us. But reckless faith assumes I'll never have a negative consequence. I'll never have a flat tire. I'll never have an accident. I'll never have a problem. That's a reckless faith. Let me move you on to what I want us to move to. Risky faith. Reckless faith assumes no consequence. Risky faith understands potential consequence, but it also is willing to take the risk. It acknowledges the reality of what we're dealing with, but it has an eternal perspective that says, I am willing to take the risk. I'm willing to stick with it because I know where I'm going. Now, the faithless man, the lazy man from Proverbs 22, 13, is ruled by fear. He said, there's a lion in the street. I could be killed. So he stays in the house. And there's some people that are, are living that way. They're, they're just afraid to do anything because they're of fear and, and overwhelmed by fear. And, and can I be candid about it today? And, I, and, I, and to me, some of the things that have been done in the name of the Lord are reckless faith, okay? You know, some of the stuff that have been done during this COVID crisis thing have been reckless. People have said, well, if you have faith, you'll no, don't worry about hygiene, don't worry about masks, hug everybody, love everybody, and God's going to protect you, and then the whole church gets sick. 
It's happened a few places. Gives us a bad name. We don't need to, to, to go there. I think we can be reasonable. But you took a risk today. You came to church. You came out. You said, I'm going to risk being with people because it's important to me and I want to be with people. I'm going to be cautious. All right? But here's the risky faith. We assess the danger, but we're willing to act. We assess the danger, but are willing to act. You can look at David, who attacks, takes on Goliath. When David takes on Goliath, his motivation for taking on Goliath was that he had already taken out a lion. The lazy man was afraid of the lion. David took out the lion. He took out the lion that was going to take the sheep. And David, because he had taken out a lion and a bear, he says, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. I've already had victories, and I understand that because I've had victories, God can give me more victories. Took out the lion, took out the bear, takes out Goliath. Then there's another guy with a lion. I love this guy. The guy's name is Benaniah. First Chronicles 11. Benaniah was one of David's mighty men. And the, the little phrase that always captured me was, Benaniah takes on a lion in a pit on a snowy day. You talk about difficult circumstances. He's on a snowy day. That's bad enough. It means it's slippery. It means it's cold. It's not a nice day. Being in a pit is not a good thing either because you're kind of limited in where you can go and what you can do. And being in there with a lion is really another level. So we've got a snowy day, we've got a pit, and we've got a lion, and that's a difficult place to be. But it says Benaniah takes on the lion in the pit on a snowy day. And because of that confidence and willingness to take risk, he ends up being the head of David's bodyguard, and he becomes the general of the army under Solomon. Perhaps no person illustrates my point better than this one. Queen Esther. You remember the story? Esther was a, an orphan, actually. She was raised by her uncle. Her parents apparently had died young. She was a Jewish girl living in a hostile environment. And the king had deposed the queen and is looking for a new queen. And Esther gets put into the mix as a potential candidate and she is chosen by King Ahasuerus and becomes the queen. Her uncle Mordecai is an outspoken Jew. He's out in the courtyard and he's developed an enemy by the name of Haman. Haman comes up with a plan that he wants to destroy all of the Jews and particularly Mordecai. And so the plan is that on a certain day, all of the Jews are to be killed. The first thing Esther hears about this is that her uncle Mordecai is dressed in sackcloth, and so she sends him out some new clothes, and he refuses them, lets her know, listen, Esther, this is what happened. Our people are going to be destroyed, and you need to go and intervene with the king, because if you don't, all of the Jews could be destroyed. And Esther responds, I have not been called for 30 days. And she knew that if the king didn't raise the scepter to her, when she would walk in, she would die. But she says to Mordecai, listen, 
I want you to pray. Our people will pray that are in here, my maidservants, all those. And I'm going to go to the king and I'm going to plead for our people because Mordecai let her know, listen, Esther, you may think you're safe for a while, but they're going to find out who you really are. So you're not safe even in the palace. And so Esther gives this word to Mordecai. I'm going to go in, and if I perish, I perish. Think about that. If I perish, I perish. If the scepter is not raised and I perish, I perish. Risky faith. Willing to acknowledge that there could be even death as a result of this risk. Esther says, I'm going in. And by the grace of God, the king raises the scepter. And when he does, the people are spared. If I perish, I perish. You see, Esther could say that because she understood that life was more than the moment. It was more than what she could see. It was more than where she was at the moment. It was something far beyond that. And over the centuries, we've had Christians who have been those kind of risk-taking people. Those kind of people who have been trusting God no matter what the case may be. One of the ministries that we had in Liberia for many, many years was a leprosy mission. We had our missionaries who went to Liberia to care for lepers at risk of their own lives, at risk of their own health, because they believed God called them and they took a risk to say, we're willing to go. Through the centuries, Christians have done that, whether it's been leprosy or the Black Plague or AIDS or COVID-19 or whatever, Christians who have said, I'm willing, I understand the risk. I'm not assuming that I'm impermeable to the risk. I'm going to take every precaution I can. But if I can care for people, I'm willing to love them enough to put myself at risk because I trust God because I know that this isn't all there is. Life isn't over when I breathe my last breath here on earth, it really just begun. You see, my next chapter is way greater than this. We live with eternity in our hearts. We live with something far beyond who we are in this world because we're living in our trust of God. Let me take you to the last one, and I'm calling it resting faith. Resting faith is what allows me to have risky faith because resting faith is where we know who we are and we're secure in the relationship that we have with God. Our trust is in Him. Our hope is in Him. Our life is in Him. Our future is in His hands. That's where we're hanging on to. I love the story of Elisha, the Old Testament. Elisha had been uh, prophetically getting words from the Lord that were warning the king of Israel uh, about the Syrian army. And uh, the, the king was getting pretty upset of, of, of Syria because every time he would try to make a raid or something, the children of Israel were ahead of him and they were aware of their ambushes and everything was messed up. And, and they, he finally said, who is revealing the battle plans to the king of Israel? One of our people must be a traitor. And they said, no, 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 it's, it's that Elisha guy over in Dothan. So the king of Syria sends a big army over to, to Dothan to go and get Elisha. 
And uh, Gehazel, his servant, one morning he goes out to get the Dotham Gazette and opens the doors, reaching down for the paper, and he looks up and he sees his whole army. Goes into panic, slams the door, leaves the paper, runs back to Elisha, who's on his, having his coffee, and, and he says, Elisha, 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 you ought to see what's out there. There's Syrians everywhere. And so Elisha said, okay, I'm coming with you. And they get there, and Elisha opens the door. He said, okay, Lord, open Gehazel's eyes so he can see. Now Gehazel sees in the spirit, perhaps, the armies of heaven, the hosts of heaven surrounding the armies of Syria. The the armies of heaven are greater and stronger than any earthly army. And and suddenly, as his eyes see that, Gehazel gets a little bit of courage. And then Elisha says, okay, God, would you strike blindness upon all these Syrians? And he does. And so now all the Syrian army is blind. And and Elisha says, uh, you're not in the right place. Let me take you to the man you need to see. And so they go off. You can just see them. They're hands on shoulders, hands on shoulders. They're walking down. And they go from Dothan to, to Samaria. And Elisha gets them inside the city of Samaria. And then when they're all inside a walled city, he said, okay, God, open their eyes. And they look around and realize they're captives. The king of Israel wants to kill them. Elisha don't kill them. Just give them some food. Send them home. They're prisoners of war. They send them home. And it says they never come back and bother them again. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know the three boys, book of Daniel, commanded to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar, his image that's been set up, and when you hear the music, fall down and worship, and they refuse, and so fiery furnace is the punishment that they're supposed to have. I want you to hear what they say. They're standing before the king, and the king says, who can deliver you from my hand? And their response is, Our God is well able to deliver us from your hand. Our God is well able to deliver us. God is able to do it. But if not, that's the risky side and the resting side. If not, if God doesn't do it the way we expect he might, let it be known to you, O king, we're not bowing down. We're serving a God who is eternal, not one who is temporary. We're serving a God who has eternity written in our hearts, and we are going to serve him and him alone. And so he's the only one we're going to bow down to. And the king, in his anger, throws him into the furnace. And you know the story, the fourth man in the fire, probably Jesus with them, having a conversation as they're unharmed in the fire that destroyed the lives of many of the soldiers who threw them in. And then there's Daniel in the lion's den, another story, same book. Daniel, because of his faithfulness in praying, is thrown into the den and the lion's mouths are shut. God protects him and as he's sleeping the night, using a lion for a pillow probably, the king is up all night. He's all bothered. And in the morning, has your God been able to save you, Daniel? Yeah, I'm still here. He comes out and the enemies are thrown in. They die before they even hit the bottom of the pit. Problem wasn't that the lions weren't hungry. The problem was they didn't have the right meal. A couple of you will get that a little bit later on. It'll come around. You'll be all right. I got to quit in just a minute here, but let me give you a couple more things. Hebrews chapter 11 is really, we call it the faith chapter. We begin with that today. The latter part of the chapter in it, it, it just gives us a summary of some of the stuff we've already talked about, but listen to it. It says, 
Verse 32, Hebrews 11, what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women receiving their dead raised to life again. And I wish it stopped right there. But it doesn't. It goes on to say others. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were stoned in two. They were tempted, were slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. Being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. We've been so incredibly privileged, many of us, that we've not suffered. And yet, sometimes we get so arrogant as to say, well, if you suffer, it must be because you don't have faith. Uh, maybe you suffer because you have faith and you can endure and you can stay strong because God is with you, because you know he's with you. You know his hope is with you. You know your life is with you. But here's the place we need to come to. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, it speaks about this place that God wants us to be. Verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, speaking of God's rest, has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. The place of rest in God is the place where our trust has become absolute in who he is and what he does. We can rest in him. I've compared it to Simple illustration of a hammock. If you get in a hammock and you don't flip out, but you get in, when you lay down in that thing, it's pretty comfortable, and yet you're dependent upon a couple strings tied to a couple trees or a frame of some sort. And you're kind of in a vulnerable place, but you're also in a resting place. Life is a lot like that. Only in this case, God's got both handles. You're secure there. And one of the things that's kind of fun to do in a hammock is get a good book and read it. How about the good book in God's hammock? Resting in Him. You see, when we come to the place where we realize penance isn't going to save me, Repentance is what begins the journey. I need to say that one again because it needs to be processed. Because a lot of people are convinced penance is the way in. Well, if I can just do enough good stuff, it'll make up for some of the bad stuff, and somehow then God will accept me. No. Repentance says I turn from the stuff I used to do. And I turned to the one who already did everything that needed to be done to take care of it. See, there's nothing I can do that will undo all of the evil that I've done. 
but there is one who has already paid the price for everything that I've even thought of doing. There's one who has already paid the price in full, and what I am called to do is simply to rest in him and to trust that what he has done is enough for me. Let me call you to two things as we close today. There are two things that I invite you to rest in. The first one is this promise that Jesus has made. Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God is with his people. We can rest in that. You see, if I know who I am, I'm one of his because I've put my trust in him. I've put my hope in him. I've accepted what he did as sufficient for what I have done. Can I say that one again? I accept what he did as sufficient to pay the price for anything that I've done. That his sacrifice was sufficient. His grace is enough. His provision is complete. What he has done is all I need. I rest in that. And then my future hope. John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And I love this little phrase. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus is so full of truth that he has to say, if it wasn't true, I would have had to tell you because I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have to tell you the truth. If it were not so, I would have told you. Behold, I go and prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. When we're resting in him, we can risk for him. We don't need to be reckless. We don't need to say, well, there'll never be consequence. But we can be risky, saying, God, we're going to trust you no matter what happens and no matter what comes. Let's stand together, shall we? And I want to close today, and we're, we're not a liturgical church as such in that we don't repeat a a, a confession of faith or a liturgy on, uh, uh, that's written out in every service, but I think there's some value from time to time to just confess our faith, to just refresh our faith, to just speak it out. You know, the Bible says that if we believe in our heart that Jesus is the Son of God and that God has raised Him from the dead and we confess that with our mouth, we can be saved. That seems like a very simple process, doesn't it? And that's part of the problem. It's hard sometimes to rest in something so simple. And yet that's what he's called us to do. And I'd like to just invite us today. And for somebody in the room, this may be a life-changing moment for you. This may be that turnaround moment when everything changes. When Jesus becomes the Lord of your life instead of simply an appendage. He becomes the leader. He becomes the king. He becomes the savior. He becomes the redeemer. He becomes the hope for king. He becomes all that he is. But for all of us, it's time to just make confession of who he is. And so I'd like to just have us line by line. If you'd pray with me and we'll make it a prayer. And so would you repeat with me line by line? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came into this world, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, 
shed his blood for my sin. I repent of my sin. I receive your grace. I thank you that you're alive from the dead. That you're seated at the right hand of the Father. You're coming again for all those who are looking for you. Help me to rest in you. Help me to live a life that is full of faith, that touches others. In Jesus' name. Father, I thank you that you heard that simple prayer. Lord, I pray may we be in those places where we can rest in you, where we can find hope in you, where we can find life in you, where we can find fulfillment in you. Father, I thank you for your people. I pray you'd bless this congregation. Bless our going out and our coming in. Watch over us and keep us and guard us. But Father, help us to demonstrate your life, your love, your purpose, your plan. Because eternity lives in our hearts. Go with us with your benediction, your peace, and your grace until we meet again in Jesus' name. Amen. God's grace, so good to be with you today. Go in His. Thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We hope this has been a blessing in your life, and we look forward to having you joining us in person for a service soon. Our service times are Thursday nights at 7 o'clock and two services on Sunday morning at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. God bless you.